Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra at Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 25th of June, 2020, kind of a special day in my history uh, that we don't need to go into. At any rate, um, I'm going to be talking today about serpents. Remember, these are the serine proteases. We had talked a long time about PEDF, which has a, is a, has a homologous sequence at the protein level that looks like it may be a proteinase inhibitor, but indeed it doesn't function that way. Remember that, it, however, it had a lot of physiological associations with the two different cancers we talked about, uh, basilar carcinoma, as well as the pancreatic uh, ductal adenocarcinoma. So today, though, I want to talk to you about frank serpents, serine protease inhibitors, because I want to get into how these have been massively studied in human disease, as well as normal physiology. So that's what we're going to do today, and let's get right on it. <clears throat> so I'm going to say that the title of this talk is Serpent Biochemistry and Cancer, <laughs> and I also want to bring up something new. Um, I just finally decided to create a Patreon page for our podcast, and I did that just earlier this week, and I posted on Facebook, uh, and that's as far as I've gotten with it. So from now on, I'm going to be putting the link to the Patreon page into uh, the material for each of the Authentic Biochemistry podcasts, somewhere in where I you know, describe what it's about, and try to get as many listeners, that is you kind people that listen to my lectures and seminars, to um, think about joining Authentic Biochemistry via Patreon. And if you have anything to donate, that would be really appreciated. Um, the reason I need that is this um, podcast I do does take a fair amount of time to put together. And I'm including not only the audio, but also the video lectures. And uh, just to give you an idea, to put together one of those lectures, which lasts only about an hour on YouTube, uh, probably takes me about eight to ten hours to prepare. So it's a fair amount of my time. And uh, that's, I love the work and that's why I do it. I love to teach and I love to talk about authentic biochemistry and delve into the published research in frank, peer-reviewed scientific liter literature. I do that anyway, but I also am expressing it to the world. And for that, I need to be able to carry out a lot of this podcasting and video production. And that does take a lot of time and that takes me away from other things I'm doing and also can sometimes be uh, not only time consuming, but also can utilize a little bit of uh, money. So that's what I'm asking for. Um, if you can donate anything to this cause, that'd be greatly appreciated. Now, I haven't decided yet what I'm going to do for Patreon subscribers that's unique from all the free stuff I do, but I will figure something out. <clears throat> It'll either be maybe a question and answer section. Certainly, I can take in email and I can answer your email. Um, and also, I can take hints from the audience of what you'd like me to talk about, specific, discrete topics. And um, there might be other things down the road that we can offer, such as special sessions where I might be interviewing someone like another scientist, which I think is going to be a first here at Authentic Biochemistry. And I think it's coming up pretty soon in July. And I'll keep you posted on that. 
So I don't have any merchandise to sell, and I'm keeping this ad free because I really hate ads, not because I'm a child of the 60s and I used to watch TV when I was a kid and I hated commercials even back then, but just because when you're in the middle of discussing something really deep and um, complicated, like you know the inner workings of a pathophysiological pathway, and all of a sudden you break and you start selling something like a pillow um, or some chewable vitamin, it just it doesn't work for me, right? In fact, it's inauthentic. And it's not that I put down people that do that, that put those ads in their podcasts or their videos. I understand why, um, because that's how you make a living. Uh, and if you have sponsors, they give you money for that. But I just don't want to do that. I want to stick with this being just a free flow of scientific and sometimes philosophical information. And so let's keep it at that. And you can greatly help me if you could donate what you can to Patreon. Okay, so that's enough of the uh, talk on that. So let's get into this discussion. So we're starting to talk about a paper published in Oncology Letters that was published in late 2019, back December. And I already gave you the uh, reference, but it's going to be volume 18 and the pages are 6741 uh, and 6, 6751. So here we go with this paper. Most significant gene expression increases when these researchers looked at PDAC tissues. Okay, so these are from patients that have pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. So they, they looked at several papers and they did a meta-analysis all the way in late 2019 on what kinds of genes change uh, upon um, the disease state. And what they found is a lot of the genes that seem to be altered in PDAC were associated with the extracellular matrix, which sounds like what? Like to me, it sounds like metastasis and signaling. So let's see what they found. So they tell you that they use the pathways analysis. It's called a KEGG or a KEG. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that right now. I will later about what I think about the value of that. But for right now, they use a KEGG pathway analysis, which can, in other words, let the computer discern what the genes are they're pulling out associated with what metabolic interactions occur in the cell. And they found out that there were genes associated with pancreatic secretion. They also found genes associated with phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase, AKT signaling, and these ECM, or extracellular matrix receptor interactions. They see that those were really enriched when they did this analysis on these PDAC tissues. Now, they say that the result carries some diagnostic potency because, and I mentioned it too, the extracellular matrix and subcellular signaling, right? are necessary for all kinds of things in cancer, including differentiation, cell fate, in other words, autophagy versus, say, apoptosis, proliferation, right, that is cell division, and, of course, migration leading to metastasis. Say so they claim in this paper that there were uh, this meta-analysis that they found 10 highly connected genes. And I'm not going to run through the list right now, but there are metalloproteinases in there. There's something... Dellendrieri like albumin, uh, epidermal growth factors in there, uh, fibronectin is in there, and, uh, and so are a few of these really curious uh, protease inhibitors like serpene one. 
Uh, and there's also the plasminogen plasmin system, which I'm going to do some detail here right now. Anyways, they screen those and they call those 10 hub genes, hub being the ones that are foundational, I guess, for pediatric uh, pathophysiology. So they say that fibronectin 1 and this gene called PLAU, which, which is basically the plasminogen activator urokinase enzyme, which is a protease, of course, all were identified previously. And they say that multiple studies determine that those genes are associated with tumor genesis and, of course, progression, um, and not of the disease-free type, of course. For example, they say the fibronectin gene encodes, you know, of course, fibronectin, as I said, major constituent of the ECM within the tumor microenvironment. The binding of fibronectin to its receptor activates to set that particular signaling pathway in these pancreatic cancer cells and unfortunately promotes tumor cell survival, invasion, metastasis, and indeed angiogenesis. So you can see the PDF is low there. Remember, that was what the discussion was in the last couple of talks. The expression of fibronectin in pancreatic cancer cells also associated with low survival rate. Okay, so it looks like it is linked um, inversely with survival rate. So another gene that they found that was regulated in PDAC and seemed to be associated with the disease was TIMP1. So what's that? That's tissue inhibitor metalloproteinase 1. So it's an inhibitor, you see? Of course, it's going to be a secreted protein because it's showing up in the uh, matrix. And of course, that makes it a glycoprotein. And what it does is it blocks metalloproteinase activity, the MMP pathways. Um, and it circulates in a complex with, with those enzymes. So you get a protein-protein interaction, probably a hydrophobic interaction, that allows this inhibitor to bind, this TIMP, to bind to these MMPs. And when it does that, it keeps the MMPs in an inactive state, right? Kind of like subunit interactions, kind of like the R and T state I had written about earlier this week. Uh, when I was talking about um, the phosphofructokinase pathway, and I published that as a short, uh, what I call authentic biochemistry minute in my Facebook. So at any rate, so you get that kind of interaction, binds to the MMPs, and it renders them inactive. Now, this uh, TIMP1 is produced in lots of different cell types, fibroblast, osteoblast, endothelial cells, as well as dendritic cells, and indeed vascular smooth muscle cells, adipocytes, and even monocyte macrophages. So TIMP1 seems to protect against apoptosis in B cells. And it also stimulates erythropoiesis um, and also is involved then in this B cell expansion. It stimulates and inhibits tumor growth depending on when it's expressed or when it's delivered. It also can be found to inhibit angiogenesis like PEDF was associated and it seems to stimulate gonadal stereogenesis in conjunction with a couple of other proteins, one of them being cathepsin. L, indeed, that particular isoform. So TIMP1 metalloprotease inhibitor functions by forming one-to-one -one complexes with its target metalloproteinases. So one of those metalloproteinases is actually a collagenase. And I don't know if you know anything about oncology literature, you know the collagenases are usually... Uh, enzymes which are turned on during the early stages of metastasis. 
So anyways, this TIMP1 irreversibly inactivates collagenases because it binds directly to its catalytic zinc cofactor. So sometimes it doesn't just bind to and inhibit activity. It actually acts as a complete poison to them. Uh, so it acts on lots of these metalloproteases, uh, proteases, uh, isoforms 1, 2, 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, and ongoing. I'm not going to give you the whole list. Now, there's another protein we need to start talking about. So you learn about TIMP1 being associated with PDAC. And you know now that it's a prote uh, that it's a protease inhibitor. Now, here is this system called PLAU. Now, this is the plasminogen activator urokinase system. Now, that's a protease. And it cleaves the zymogen, plasminogen, to form the active enzyme plasmin, which then cleaves fibrin clots. So basically, it's a fibrinolysis factor. Okay, so PLAU is what we call it, or PLAU, and there's a PLAU receptor, which has to be functioning for PLAU to work. Okay, so that's some background. So now, paper published back in 2009 in BMC Medical Genetics, that'd be volume 10, page 112 and ongoing, talks, we're going to get away here from a moment because that's what I do in AB, Authentic Biochemistry, is I give you some background that's not just about cancer, for example. So this paper is about airway remodeling. Now, this has to do with problems, of course, in the airway passages in the lung. So <clears throat> when you get extracellular matrix degradation, which can be associated with, with metallo uh, matrix pro, uh, protein activation, protease activation, you then turn on complement, which then induces TGF-beta-1 activation. Now, that's going to be a pro-inflammatory cytokine system. 5-lipoxygenase activation, which is going to induce oxygenated fatty acids, which you know are part of the innate immune system. Ultimately, also TNF-alpha, interleukin-1-alpha, and interleukin-1-beta proteolytic uh, production also angiogenesis and cell migration. So these are not good things because all that's associated with something called airway remodeling. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Well, as it turns out, serpene 2, which is a serine protease inhibitor, just called serpene 2. And then there are two of these plasminogen activator inhibitors. Okay? So there's PAI1 and PAI2. All three serpents and the two PAIs are going to block the plasminogen activator urokinase from binding to three discrete proteins. So once you bind to the receptor, once PLAU binds to its PLAUR, you get a complex, and it's a multi-domain complex, and it has three different domains. Just to, right now, we can just call them domains one, two, and three. And so you get this super complex of the plasma membrane. And it exists also as, a, as bound to GPI, right? So that means it's bound to a glycerophosphatidylinositol linked protein. That's the whole system in toto. And it can exist in this membrane bound and in multiple soluble forms. So the soluble receptor associated with the, uro, with the um, uh, urokinase activity can go, can leave the membrane and it, it itself then is involved in cell adhesion and cell migration, soluble forms, some of the soluble forms. And 
you just know the nomenclature. You get a small s in front of the P-L-A-U-R, and now you get a soluble uh, plasminogen-activated urokinase receptor. You can also get part of that receptor cleaves, and now you're only left with D2 and D3 subunits, and that's involved in chemotaxis. But remember that all these serpene PAIs all inhibiting this. Ultimately, you know that when the PLAU is bound to its receptor, the three-domain normal receptor, it also has a bunch of other co-receptors, right? This is the way proteins work. They never work by themselves. Of course, enzymes do by themselves. Like phosphofructokinase is just an enzyme that you can solubilize and purify column chromatography, for example. Uh, and ultimately, that enzyme will just do one thing, right? It'll take fructose 6-phosphate and fructose one, make fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. So you do have proteins that just act by themselves, of course. But when you're starting to talk about signaling and receptor-mediated issues, this usually involves a whole host of co-receptors. So dig this. Just with the PLAU complex, the co-receptors include integrins, epidermal growth factor receptor, mannose-6-phosphate receptor, the classical GP130, which is in a lot of cancers, as well as FPRL and the, the derived growth factor receptor beta. So there's a lot of co-receptors associated with plasma and plasminogen. Now, ultimately, what they do subcellularly when the receptor is working at the cell level is PLAUR can turn on ERK MAP kinase, FAC kinase, the phosphatidylinositol 1,3 kinase, the RAC, the MAC, and the JAK-STAT pathways, which, uh, you know, are involved in, in various immune responses as well as in certain oncogenic events. So in the airway remodeling model, all of this leads to proliferation, migration, adhesion, endocytosis, and indeed cytoskeletal changes within these cells and airway passages. So the interaction between the plow, plow R is critical for the conversion, of course, for plasminogen to plasmin. It's regulated by all these other proteins I just mentioned to you. Now, all of those are implicated in COPD pathogenesis, right? chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. That's what COPD is, of course. So plasmin has many downstream proteolytic effects, including those common to remodeling of the airways, and I just mentioned that homotelloproteomase system. So PLAUR interacts with membrane receptors, leading to the activation of multiple signaling cascades because of all those core receptors I just told you about, uh, and that results in alterations in those various mechanisms, proliferation, migration, adhesion, endocytosis, and cytoskeletal change. So PLAUR can also exist in the soluble forms, remember that, and that's generated by further splicing or and, and, um, uh, endpoint cleavage, proteolytic cleavage, and it's implicated not only in chemotaxis, but also interactions, other different interactions with extracellular matrix. So this is a huge system in the cell system. Um, so, Plasminogen activator inhibitor one, one of those inhibitors, there, are, there is a classical inborn error metabolism called PAI1 deficiency. So I want to mention it to you, for, for those of you who are clinicians. It's a rare inherited autosomal recessive, uh, and basically it, it presents as a bleeding disorder. And the reason it's a bleeding disorder, because it's involved in excessive clot lysis. And that can lead to lifelong moderate bleeding 
PAI1, of course, is an essential protein in the downregulation of the fibrinolytic pathway, as we've been saying. Protein itself, the inhibitor is a 47 kilodalton protein, and it's, of course, associated with the serine protease inhibitor superfamily, right? And I want you to keep that in mind because that's where we're at. We're talking about serine proteases and serine protease inhibitors. So that PA1 gene... One moment. Protease inhibitors are a class of antiviral... Sorry about that. My phone activated. (laughs) PAI1 gene in humans is located on uh, chromosome 7. And it spans only about 12 kb. It's not really that large. And it has nine exons. Expression is induced by insulin. So the PAI, the inhibitor, is induced by insulin. Okay. It's also induced by TGF, beta, and by endotoxin from bacteria. PAI1 is synthesized, secreted from endothelial cells. It also comes from megakerocytes, hepatocytes, and adipocytes. Um, You can also find it in so-called alpha granules. Platelets have 10 times, platelets have 10 times more PAI1 antigen uh, than what you find in regular circulating plasma. So that's also a possible indicator when people want to look at um, issues with um, platelets, right? For platelet degradation, you're going to get a lot of PAI in the blood. Uh, About 80% of the PAI is stored in the platelet alpha granules, as I've been saying. And so that's where you find most of it. And that's where the active forms are located. And this, this whole way that it's arranged and it's found in the cells might also be an explanation why there's bleeding events in cases where only a plasma deficiency of the PA1 is documented because there's so much of it, you see. Uh, indeed, the latent form can be converted to the active form uh, with, with any kind of denaturants when you're purifying this protein. Uh, and in fact, any negatively charged phospholipids will do the same measure of activity against them. There are reports that go way back to the 1980s regarding the PAI2 isoform that you can get from placenta, leukocytes, and lymphoma cells. And it showed that both PAI1 and 2, these studies have shown, um, do work on tissue plasminogen activator, TPA, and urokinase plasminogen activator, that's the UPA system. And they tend to increase in pregnancy despite an overall fibrinolytic activity, which remains constant during gestation. So PAI1 levels increase steadily after the 20th week of pregnancy in women. And at term, they're about threefold higher than levels of non-pregnant women. So PIA2 levels are below the detection limit in normal plasma, yet at term at nine months are 25-fold higher. So you can see there's a lot of activity going on in controlling the uh, uh, plasmin, plasminogen, plasminogen, plasmin, fibrinetic clot, uh, uh, clot system. So what's the role of PAI1, right? I mean, this is obviously the, the key feature here why we're talking about this physiologically. Well, you know that fibrinolysis is is very critical for hemostatic control because it regulates the control of clot dislusion, and therefore it's associated with wound repair. It also plays key roles in inflammation and in neoplasia and in lots of other biological processes, kinds of like the ones I was talking about, the downstream co-adapter molecules. 
The major components of the fibrinolytic pathway, of course, are the plasminogen activator, and then plasminogen itself, plasmin itself, and then fibrinogen, fibrin factor 13, the clotting mechanism, alpha-2 antiplasmin, and indeed the plasminogen activator inhibitor. All of those are playing a role. So plasminogen activators, uh, UPA or TPA are all highly specific serine proteases. They cleave as imogen plasminogen, and it catalyzes the formation of plasmin. And that's the primary protease essential for fibrinolysis. So the 15-UPA is present in plasma and also in tissues, while the TPA is produced by almost exclusively by endothelial cells. Physiological fibrinolysis occurs exclusively on the clot surface within a blood vessel and not, of course, in circulation. Uh, the fibrin clot provides an optimal surface to increase the efficiency of plasmin generation through the formation of complex fibrin, TPA, and plasminogen. The regulation of fibrinolysis occurs through the alpha-2 antiplasmin, which is, of course, the physiological, the natural inhibitor of plasmin, and through the plasminogen activator inhibitor type 1, that's the PAI1 we've been talking about, which, uh, if I haven't said it already, binds to the plasminogen activator in more or less a one-to-one stoichiometry, and that results in their irreversible inhibition. The tissue plasminogen activator-mediated plasminogen activation occurs prior to the dissolution of the fibrin clot, of course, uh, and that can occur in circulation, while the urokinase PA binds to a specific cellular receptor called UPAR, of course, and that results in the anti-activation of cell-bound plasminogen. In normal plasma, TPA activity is extremely low. The majority of it is usually in a complex with the inhibitor. And the inhibitor there is PAI1, of course. So all of that then can basically explain how plasminogen activation, which normally takes plasminogen and then is converts it to plasmin, will take a fibrin clot and it'll break it down to fibrin degradation products. Now, Fibrinogen can also make soluble fibrin because of the activity of thrombin. And thrombin can also interact with factor 13. Factor 13 with soluble fibrin can make something called a cross-linked fibrin. And plasminogen with TPA also can function to break down the cross-linked fibrin. Okay? And remember that these PAIs, what they do is they inhibit the initial plasminogen activation, they bind to tissue plasminogen activator to make complexes, and they also uh, can then inhibit the overall uh, dissolution of the fibrin clot or indeed these cross-linked fibrins. So that's their physiological uh, purpose. So I'm gonna stop there now and uh, publish this 30-minute segment of Authentic Biochemistry. And I'm going to put in there uh, where the Patreon can be found. And what I'm going to follow right up probably this afternoon or tomorrow morning is continuing about these serine protease inhibitors and get a further discussion and get all the way back into cancer. I gave you that background about blood chemistry so that you understand that these are ubiquitous proteins and they have a, a, a tremendous host of very important
physiological um, purpose. Thank you very much for listening to me. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest on the 25th of June, 2020. Bye for now.